Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. And the nominees for Best Picture are 10 Cloverfield Lane, Suicide Squad, Doctor Strange, Sausage Party, Independence Day Resurgence, The Accountant. Uh, those are not the nominees. And the Oscar for Best Picture goes to Wiener. Well, that can't be right. It, I mean, it wasn't even on the list of nominees you read. I said Sausage Party. Mm, sausage Party and Wiener are, you know, not the same movie. Well, you know what? Fake news. Alternate facts, enemies of the people. Bowling Green, Sweden. Thank you. Good night, everybody. See, this is what it's come to. You can't just say fake news every time some mistake is pointed out. Uh, who are you going to listen to? Me or lying Ted Cruz here? That's not who I am. You are so pathetically stuck in the fact-based era. What do you think this is? 2017? This is 2017. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Okay, you can listen to Mr. Let's Get Everything Right here, or you can listen to this radio show. And now the father of chemical thermodynamics. Not true. Colin McEnroe. <laughs> I think that is the very definition of a smattering of applause. All right, so we are sitting here in a, a mild divot between the Academy Awards last night, as you heard referred to in the introduction, and uh, President Trump's address to Congress tomorrow. Uh, and there's always kind of a... Well, first of all, I do feel like there's some kind of... It's the equivalent of a computer virus that the, the mistake-prone Trump administration, the way in which they are just constantly making errors large and small, uh, it's like it's a computer virus that got into the Academy Awards somehow last night. But anyway, we're, we're at that moment where culture and politics are kind of eyeing each other across a small ravine. There is, I think, no better person. I, I mean, I'm not engaging in a hyperbole. I can't imagine a better person to talk to at a moment like this. Then our guest, Frank Rich. Let me just tell you what's coming up after Frank, actually. Uh, in the second segment today, we are going to talk to two uh, clergymen who are involved in what amounts to a new underground railroad for uh, people, persons affected by the new immigrant policies and immigrant orders. Uh, the churches around the country are putting together a remarkable kind of ad hoc set of responses uh, to help people who would otherwise maybe be uh, hunted out uh, by uh, ICE and other agencies and, and, and hide them and maybe even smuggle them into Canada. I mean, it couldn't even get more on the nose as a comparison to the uh, the old Underground Railroad. Um, and then at the end of the show, uh, I will try to open the phones for some calls because we don't do that often enough. And I'm sure you all have a lot to talk about. Anyway, uh, on a day like this where we are in a little valley between a big cultural event and possibly a big political uh, event, uh, Frank Rich is the perfect person to talk to. This is the terrain he explored so masterfully uh, in his days as a New York Times columnist. He's gone on to do the same as writer at large for New York Magazine. He's also the executive producer of Veep, which you could say also mines that territory, but in a different way. So, Frank Rich, welcome back to our show. Great to be with you, as always. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Frank, I mean, last night, the Oscars, we, we knew that the Oscars would, in some way, try to talk back to 
Donald Trump, uh, and it might not be in quite um, a stemwinder of a speech, as Meryl Streep has been known to give about this, but that there would be remarks all the way through, that, that Hollywood would make its displeasure felt. And, and I guess the first question that I have is, does any of that really matter? I mean, does 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 culture have the capacity uh, to fight with Trump for the loyalties of the American public? Uh, I guess the short answer is no. Um, you know, uh, there's there's a long history, including at the Oscars, of uh, speaking back uh, uh, to power. Remember uh, Marlon Brando and mm-hmm. uh, Native American movement back in the '60s, using you know the Oscars as a as a forum, and you know, indeed, a lot of pop culture as the Vietnam War turned south, the Smothers Brothers. So you know, even on network television, people were in culture were heard, and of course. All during the Bush years, uh, uh, there was plenty of uh, pushback on the Oscar broadcast. I feel uh, it's a very rarefied it's a very rarefied audience, even though it's a mass audience, uh, a declining one in network TV for the Oscars. Uh, and let's face it, most of the movies nominated, in fact, all all the major contenders for Best Picture, have been seen by a relatively paltry uh, uh, part of the American public. Uh, certainly Moonlight, uh, but also even La La Land, which is a bigger hit than most of them commercially, just not that big an audience. Um, and so the people who tune into the show are probably very much invested in the movies that are nominated. And, uh, you know, it's like a World Series, I'd say, when, um, you know, it's it's second-tier teams and not major cities that are, or not in top cities, not top franchises that are, that are you know squaring off against each other, just the audience falls, and franchise movies, the movies that do have uh, 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 big mass audiences, really are not contenders in the Oscars. So, I'd say no. I, I I'd also say that it all plays in a way into Trump's hands. I think that Steve Bannon is, uh, from all I can tell, including the fact he actually has some Hollywood ex- experience as an investor and, and would-be screenwriter and filmmaker uh, knows knows exactly what's going on. He's much more sophisticated about all of this uh, uh, than Trump is. And I've always felt, for instance, that sending Mike Pence to Hamilton was a Bannon move or a Bannon-sanctioned move because it was a smart move for them. They didn't Obviously, they didn't know that, that the vice president or vice president-elect, whichever he was at the time, would would be lectured by the cast, but Hamilton uh, uh, is a, is clickbait on places like uh, well throughout throughout the country, but particularly in places like the New York Times website. This was a way to hook Pence and the, and the administration into that in a way that would appeal to their supporters, and uh, I think they could count on some kind of disruption or reaction to Pence showing up at that show. So I think this, they're they're probably fine with it, and I think people in Hollywood. Having particularly since I've just been there for two months shooting Veep and talked to a lot of people in, in Hollywood and in the business, I, I don't think they have uh, uh, grand ideas of their impact. I think people are very concerned, very upset about the election, uh, certainly including people on my show, uh, and are trying to figure out ways that their work can make a difference and their political activism can make a difference. But I don't think anyone really feels that. Um, 
Hollywood per se has much clout in the situation. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure it is true, and we we might even talk about it later about what would make a difference. But that you know, in in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and in Michigan, um, you know, what Jimmy Kimmel or Gabrielle, uh, oh no, I'm going to mangle his name. <laughs> but, yes. But, uh, the guy from you, Mama Tom, Tom, you know, what they say is not necessarily going to rattle that many chains. I, I just think the chains that might get rattled are those of Donald Trump himself. I mean, Steve Bannon has some kind of long game he's playing. We don't even know what it is. Right. It's right. scary, whatever it is. It involves the weakening of fundamental American institutions and, and their replacement by God knows what. But Trump has a very short game and a short fuse, you know, unlike anybody else except maybe Ronald Reagan. You know, I mean, he sort of comes out of this whole entertainment industry background to a certain degree. Reagan, at least, had been governor of California for a while. But it's the equivalent of if Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and a whole bunch of other movie cowboys were constantly criticizing Ronald Reagan uh, as a political leader. That might have gotten under Reagan's skin at a certain point. And, And I'm just thinking for Trump himself to be such a pariah, uh, it's got to mean something. I guess it does. One difference between Reagan and Trump, however, that's in, in terms of how Reagan was affected, Reagan was a longtime Hollywood player. He was, he was sort of a B-list star, but he had had a long career, obviously, in movies and then in television, and also, of course, uh, uh, with the Screen Actors Guild and, and, and uh, the, you know, the, the Hollywood labor movement, if you will. So he probably had a context for people in the business who uh, uh, didn't like him or were insulting him, who were not, you know, his allies like, say, George Murphy. Um, on the other hand, Trump is really from not really a Hollywood person. He's really, he really had a reality television show in New York on a major network and successful for a while, to be sure. But I think he's probably fairly unsophisticated about the bulk of the television business and and the movie business. He obviously is very up on cable news and to some extent on reality television and on, on award shows. So yes, if he watched the Oscars, it's not clear he did because he actually had some <laughs> official to what a governor's dinner last night. But 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 uh, I'm sure it would have annoyed him just as the Streep. You know, he tweeted about Meryl Streep, and he tweets every time someone takes a shot at him on on cable. Uh, or or in, or in any news program, but I, I also feel his ego is such that he's somewhat telling himself that it's all fine because surely the single biggest insult from show business he's received was at his inauguration itself, when he basically he could not get any A list or even B list or C list uh, entertainer to appear. That must have made him crazy that he couldn't book acts. Uh, and had to, it, and it was also true at the convention, you know, the 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 uh, what's his name, Bayo, Scott Bayo yeah. of it all. So that must really rankle him. And I, my guess is, the, if he saw the Oscars, or, you know, watches award shows, it bothers him too. On the other hand, uh, he just keeps plowing on, and it, it seems like not enough to deter him from what he's up to. Um. Speaking of Steve Bannon and Bannon's possible long game, one place that I will absolutely go along with you that B- Bannon is planting certain things. I, I in in Trump's 
ongoing battles with the press, and we had this kind of remarkable thing recently where the New York Times wasn't uh, included in a briefing right. uh, as a Times veteran. But I had some interesting thoughts about that. But the constant use of enemies of the people, and I don't think Trump is the kind of person who would reach for that particular phrase and, and understand its resonance across, you know, the use by a whole bunch, everybody from Robespierre to, to Lenin to Khrushchev. This has been used over and over again in a very specific way. That, I really do think, has been planted by Bannon. He knows what it means. Of course he does. Uh, now, it's interesting, and, and you wonder, too, you know, the America First, which uh, first appeared uh, with Trump early in, in his uh, his campaign for president, that may have been pre-Bannon controlling things, and there it's clear Trump had no idea of its associations with essentially sort of a Nazi, uh, pro, uh, you know, a Nazi-ish movement in America uh, prior to World War Two, and of course, once he found out, he didn't care. He still kept he uses it to this day, but now uh, Bannon is reaching, I'm sure, into the whole lexicon uh, for stuff that's been uh, proven, even if by people like Stalin, to work in certain uh, contexts. And I'm just wondering how effective all of this is going to be. I mean. Uh, you know, there's the old adage, uh, you know, don't get into a fight uh, with somebody who buys ink by the barrel and, and probably has some digital equivalent today. But, I mean, they're doing something different. They're not they're fighting about everything. They're fighting uh, about very specific fact sets. They're fighting about sensibilities and, and they're devaluing, you know, this estate a, at the same time. And and I don't know. I, it almost seems as though it might be going for the going a little bit better for them than one might have guessed based on history. Yeah, you know, look, they're completely uh, destabilizing reality, not just news and, and facts, but really sort of everything. I mean, look, when you have a president who uh, lies about things that you can see with your own eyes, like the side of, size of the, the crowd at his inaugural, um, then nothing's off limits. You, you know, you can say the earth is flat, uh, and, you know, every day there, you, you can't even keep track of all the uh, um, misinformation. And while the press is doing a terrific job of, uh, particularly uh, since he's gotten in, of noting every single factual error, misstatement, uh, you know, crazy thing he does, the, the, you know, Sweden thing last week and so forth, I'm not sure uh, it moves the needle. I, I, I say this with a heavy heart, but I feel uh, most of the people who are who are aware that Trump is uh, constantly lying and the administration is constantly manipulating or misrepresenting reality are already against him. Uh, the ones who love him uh, just say it's fake news uh, and, and they believe their leader. And in the end, I think the fate of his presidency is, is probably going to be uh, uh, decided by None of this. It's going to be. It's going to be two things. One is there is a little little group in the middle. I guess a certain kind of Republican that shrugged and voted for Trump. That's not really part of his base. I think this is a small group, uh, but that they could be become disaffected. But in the end, I think certain kinds of reality are going to uh, uh, take hold that may affect his base and then may affect. Uh, Republican congressmen and senators who uh, might find themselves in jeopardy if their base gets angry. But it'll have to be very, very specific things. It will have to be losing their health care. Uh, the, 
the train's not running on time, not getting medic Medicare uh, treatment or Social Security checks, because right now there's no evidence whatsoever that Trump knows anything about governance. I mean, all we have is an endless uh, performance of public edicts and executive actions. There's, you know, today the Wall Street Journal has a uh, a very interesting piece uh, on the front page that the Republicans, of course, do have no plan for replacing Obamacare. So now they're just going to roll the dice and throw together a bill and hope that they can get it through and that there'll be no Senate defections to stop it, that it'll definitely get through the House and that there won't be too many Susan Collinses who might, uh, or Lisa Mikowski, who might who might vote against it. We'll see, but it, but really, there's no legis- there's there's no governance going on here, and that in the end, more than his uh, that may uh, I guess trump the fake news that the Trump White House is putting out. If that makes sense, it does make sense, Frank. Although I think none of it works if the Democrats don't change their own message. If they don't, one of the things that they probably should have learned from the last election cycle is simply having somebody like Trump to go negative against all the time isn't enough. You have to uh, say something else. Now, they over the weekend they picked a, a new uh, Democratic national chairman, a new kind of Democratic national chairman. There's some talk that maybe this rather superannuated leadership team in the House of Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn, all over 70 years old, sometimes much older than 70 years old, needs to be younged up a little bit. And and also this may be a sense of, I mean, one thing that I was thinking today is if, if I were Tom Perez, the first thing I would do is organize a lot of town halls in these so-called battleground states stakes that had as part of them constituent service. Like, okay, so at the end of the night, you've been yelling at your senator or your congressman about your health care problem or this problem or that problem. Go over to that desk over there and somebody's going to take your name down and somebody's going to try to solve your problem. Uh, because being the party of no is not going to work, I think, this time. You also have to be, you have to say yes to something. I think that's true. I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm in a fair bit of uh, despair about the Democrats. Um, and, and nothing to do with the leadership election. I mean, I feel I, I feel the the difference between uh, Perez and, and Ellison is you know really minor. And I think that they everyone that you you hear publicly talking a good game that so, sort of saying you know we can't be just against Trump and we have to speak to the American worker and so forth. But the, but there are two problems here. First of all, there is no real leadership in the party, I, it, or what there is is indeed too old. I mean. Uh, for, forget about even in the House, but you know Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and arguably Joe Biden, the last people left standing from this election with national profiles, are all really old. I mean, uh, you know Elizabeth Warren uh, is is the kid of the group, and I think she's 67. Um, so that's a problem, and I don't see where you know. Plus, there's not a a way to produce a good bench because. The Democrats have been so decimated at the local level in state houses and state legislatures, so there just aren't that many people. So that's one problem. So the, who would lead uh, – I, I like your idea a lot, but who would lead these? Who would get them going? Can the DNC really do it? I don't know. Then, although I I have some quarrels about Bernie, Bernie Sanders and, and did during the campaign, the fact is – I sort of fundamentally agree with his fundamental point, which is uh, it's very hard to convince voters who who went for Trump, including those in some cases who did vote for Obama once or twice prior to Trump, 
that that the that uh, the party is not in control of the same corporate interests that the Republicans are, and that somehow Trump has managed to convince voters he's not part of, even as he now staffs his uh, administration uh, with Goldman Sachs uh, executives. And um, you know, I really felt I to this day I do not understand how the Clinton campaign or the Democratic Party, which was the DNC, which was very affiliated with the Clinton campaign, stood stood by and let her give speeches to Goldman Sachs for a huge amount of money when she knew she was running for president. I don't understand uh, how the Clinton Foundation did anything but but further brand the Democratic Party and her candidacy with corporate interests and and everything that is that people feel, particularly people who, who don't like uh, trade deals like NAFTA, feel uh, stacked against them. And I feel until they get away from that, and the Obama administration didn't entirely escape it either. I mean, you know, he started with a very Clinton economic team, uh, you know, the, the Bob Rubin and Larry Summers and Tim Geithner. These are people who, in essence, protected Wall Street after uh, the crash of 2008 and in a couple of cases, benefited from it themselves. So, uh, from the crash. So, I, uh, I, I think they've had a really existential problem, and the Republicans have one too. And Trump's hijacked them because of their weaknesses. But I, 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 I just don't know. I don't know if the Democrats have a, an immediate answer for this. It, it does seem. You know, Ronald Reagan, back to him for a second, Ronald Reagan famously kind of uh, hollowed out that statement or or pointed out as hollow the statement, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Right. Um, however, Trump has really introduced the notion, I'm from the government and I'm here to hurt you, uh, whether you're an immigrant or somebody about to lose health care right. or, or some other treasured right that you have that doesn't fit into his rubric. And it does seem as though, you know, and the, the other message that Sanders had was, Government really can be the answer. Government really can help people if that's what government is set up to do, if it's not beholden, as you say, to a whole bunch of other moneyed, moneyed interests who have their own agendas. And so to me, one of the questions is, can the Democratic Party revive that idea? Yes, and I, and I have to say I do not know the answer. I mean, maybe you have a clearer idea than I do, but right now I see a lot of people uh, running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They're, they're, many of them are saying the right things, but to me it's still a very uh, uh, establishment party that does represent uh, corporate interests, um, as indeed you know Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan certainly do as well. And Trump's managed to float above both these parties being a kind of Urzat's uh, partial Bernie Sanders in some of his rhetoric, and uh, uh, so everyone's sort of stymied by this. And I, the Democrats are so used to not doing this, and this is the whole Thomas Frank point about them. And I, I have to say, I, I agree with it. Uh, they're they're so used to not thinking about, you know, middle class voters, uh, working class voters, um, that they're out of practice and out of ideas. And there probably are plenty of people there with ideas, but they're not in the leadership of the party, uh, as far as I can tell. And they're not in prominent positions in Washington. I mean, there could Chuck Schumer is a liberal Democrat, uh, but and usually says the right things. But you know, he's a, he's a, someone who has been supported by Wall Street and is very much you know identified with the establishment. And he's sort of the most effective player, I guess. To the, 
is still in the Democratic Party that's in government. Well, Frank Rich, it's been so great to talk to you. I promised that I wouldn't use up too much of your day. I, I know, know it's busy, and you've got jet lag probably on top of that. But uh, we're very excited about the return uh, of Veep and to see what Selena's new adventures are. Oh, well, thank you, and I hope I didn't. Our conversation didn't bum you or anyone else out too much. I guess I'm feeling a little bit negative about where we are, but I guess I'm not alone. No, you're not alone. On the other hand, we're about to talk to these two feisty uh, ministers who are uh, assembling an underground railroad. So That sounds really like an exciting course of action to take, and and good for them. Well, listen, thank you, and uh, we'll talk soon, I hope. All right. I hope so, too, Frank. All right. We're going to take a break. That's Frank Rich. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you about the stirrings, more than stirrings, really, of an underground railroad to resist some of the immigration orders coming out of this administration. To bring some love in here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate All right, we are back. Uh, We're going to, as as promised, talk about a very interesting movement, uh, a movement in response to the immigration policies uh, as stated by Donald Trump on the campaign trail, as enacted by President Trump and uh, and some of his cabinet, uh, as they begin to craft the shape of their administrative uh, worldview. And so there, there obviously have been drastic changes, some of them very well known and very well spelled out, and some of them maybe a little bit harder to see, some of them down in the fine print. And if we have a chance, maybe we can talk about what some of those are. But one of the big questions is, what do you do if you regard these policies not only as unwise and unnecessary, but immoral. Um, And it does uh, hark back uh, to the resistance to slavery when slavery was the law of half the land. uh, And there was something called the Underground Railroad. And there may be something very much like it forming right now. Joining us uh, by phone are the Reverend Justo Gonzalez, uh, pastor of Pilgrim St. Luke El Nuevo, uh, El Nuevo Camino, excuse me, in Buffalo, New York. And then the Reverend uh, Zachary Hoover, Baptist minister, executive director, Uh, of L.A. Voice, Los Angeles, California, Uh, each of them with stories to tell about this. So I'm going to start with um, Pastor Justo Gonzalez. Um, uh, First of all, just talk maybe, uh, uh, for starters, about the philosophy and theology behind this. Obviously, churches do take a risk at any time point when they dis- attempt to uh, defy or resist uh, laws or orders on the books. So explain why do it. Okay, first, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, for us, uh, meaning those of us in a Christian tradition, the scriptures are full of examples of sanctuary movements. Uh, but in particular, I'd really like to talk more about a broad theological perspective. Mm-hmm. The Holy See has articulated that countries have the right to define their territorial borders, but that when circumstances of abject poverty, violence, gangs, trafficking, narcotics, uh, even NAFTA, impact people's right and opportunities to earn the bread of life, the territorial boundaries and borders melt away. Uh, And many of us in the faith community are at that place. We need to recognize that our global brothers and sisters are simply seeking to earn the bread of life, to create opportunities for themselves and their children. As a son of migrants, I know what it is. 
to have parents who left their country and come to one that uh, did not honor this fact that they spoke Spanish and that they ate different foods and that they didn't quite look like what was defined as traditional Americanism. Is there any kind of theological debate going on uh, about this? I mean, the, the Holy See obviously gets the last word in, in in some circumstances. But, you know, at my church, we've been talking a little bit, and we're about to be talking a little bit about Romans 13, which is the place where Paul, you know, appears to be kind of saying, well, no, you really do have to follow the laws. You really do have to, uh, you know, that that's sort of part of keeping the church intact. Well, no one is ever obligated to follow an unjust law first and foremost, and the dignity of others, of the human person, supersedes that. And most importantly, above all theological concepts, is your conscience. If your conscience dictates that you are called to stand on the side of justice, and you are called to walk with them again, to embrace your global sisters and brothers, laws melt away. Now, of course, none of us want to be put in that position, but this is about people. And we need to stand on the side of people and their dignity and their rights to be able to to live. So let me uh, add uh, the Reverend Zachary Hoover uh, into this conversation. Uh, as I said, Baptist uh, Minister, Executive Director of L.A. Voice, Los Angeles, California. So uh, without giving away too many secrets, because obviously some of these things need to be secrets, what kinds of things are churches doing, uh, Zachary Hoover, in this vein? Yeah, thanks, Colin, and thanks for the opportunity to share, and, and thanks also, Reverend Husto. Um, you know, I just also want to be clear, it's not just churches. In our case, it's also there are synagogues and mosques that are at the center of this work, in addition to Christian communities. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a series of things, everything from the traditional sanctuary and, and congregations for those that have facilities to host people. You know, there are some congregations that have actually looked at additional properties where people, you know, families could go and, and stay and be safe. Um, everything from that to private citizens who are members of those congregations uh, thinking about really wrestling with and discerning whether they are able to provide some safe haven in their own home. Um, and, and then, you know, sort of everything in between in terms of support and accompaniment, uh, accompanying people for ICE check-ins, making sure nobody goes anywhere alone. Uh, there's a whole range of, uh, of, I mean, really quite courageous things that people are stepping up to do. Zach, in terms of things that happen on church property, um, typically the federal government doesn't want to go there. It's bad optics, uh, if nothing else. Uh, how confident are you that if some church installs showers or an apartment or whatever and begins to uh, give sanctuary to, to people who are being sought uh, by, by ICE or, or anybody else, that these people won't go onto church property and try to arrest immigrants? You know, I'm going to be speaking with my own board of deacons at our, you know, local, you know, church uh, about this this very question. I, I just don't know. I mean, we know that it has been historically respected that there's currently an ICE memo that continues to um, see congregations as sacred spaces um, and sensitive spaces, I should say. That's the language they use. Um, at the same time, we you know, we don't know. I mean, there's a level of unpredictability and um, I think uh, purposeful chaos. Uh, in the administration that, you know, I'm not going to say to any pastor, rabbi, or imam, oh, yeah, you're going to be you're going to be totally fine. Like, I think everybody understands there's an element of risk here that perhaps didn't exist in um, in previous years. 
So, um, Justo Gonzalez, Pastor Justo Gonzalez, uh, I found out more about this because of an article in BuzzFeed that uh, mentioned uh, both of you. Um, what's happened since that article ran? What have, what have the responses been like? Well, first, let me say the, and echo the words of my brother, uh, Zach, that even in western New York, it is an inclusive coalition of rabbis, Muslims, community activists, and even the labor unions that are working with us to create environments that are safe and sacred, whether it is a church or other uh, facilities that people can find protection. Uh, quite frankly, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I've received no negative information, uh, and donations for our needs to build new shower facilities, we don't have any existing, uh, have just started to pop up uh, from a variety of different states and organizations on our website. So I have written to folks and thanked them and tried to find out how they heard about us. Um, you know, my church had that difficult conversation of coming to terms with who are we, what is our DNA, what is our call, and I am grateful that no one blinked. Mm -hmm. Indeed, uh, as we educated the congregation after my original leadership team supported this unanimously, uh, we also as a community voted that unanimously to support this, and we found out, I did not know this, that in World War II, the previous pastor, Dr. Jeske, had taken in conscientious objectors. So we see this as clearly part of our DNA, part of our call to service, and yeah, we're at risk, um, but you have to take calculated risk to stand on the right side of history and the right side of justice. Um, Pastor Husto, I don't know which direction you're facing in right now, but if you turn one way or the other, you'd be facing north, and the Canadian border is not too far away. Is that part of this strategy in some cases to get people into Canada? Well, it wasn't initially part of the strategy, to be quite honest, but since some of the local media coverage here as well as nationally has occurred, we've had some partners from Canada reach out to us to begin to have some strategic conversations and to see how we might be able to support uh, not only undocumented uh, folks, but also refugees who are extremely fearful um, based upon some of the uh, nonsense of this new administration in deciding that immigrants and refugees are the enemy of the state and creating a war against immigrants. Uh, so I am thrilled that we're having those conversations, and I believe that we will create partnerships. And again, it's not only Canada. Since all of this has happened, I've had people from a variety of different states say, I have a home. It's big. It's large. I will welcome. Uh, so these are kind of the unexpected results that are wonderfully pleasing to my soul that people get it. Um, Zach, is part of what's happening here that the American public doesn't understand the breadth and depth of these changes to immigration policy? I mean, you know, if you're not paying too much attention, it just sounds like it's a continuation maybe of the Obama years policies, maybe a little tougher here, a little tougher there, maybe a little tougher along the border. Do Americans fully understand? I'm not talking about the Americans who joined your movements, but maybe Americans looking at your movement, Zach. Do they understand what it is that you're resisting, what the problem is? That's a great question. I mean, I grew up in Plainfield, Indiana, and I 
I didn't really know any immigrants. I, you know, there was I, I can remember one family who lived in my neighborhood, and and we didn't understand them very well, and we didn't do a good job of understanding them. And and you know, obviously here in Los Angeles, it's like, you know, there's literally millions of immigrants in in LA County, so it's, it's a different kind of experience. Um, but I, but I do think it's hard when you're not proximate to the pain and you're not proximate to the community, and that's why it's important for people wherever they are to try to find a way to hear stories directly from immigrants in, instead of letting somebody else filter their experience. Um, you know, uh, even I wouldn't pretend to be able to tell uh, the same immigrant story that, you know, my friends or, or, or family members could. Um, and, and we're hopeful that as people get into relationship with either individuals, families, or at the very least their stories, that, you know, there there becomes an opportunity for, for empathy that, that otherwise might you know, just might not be there yet, but I believe the seed is there. Um, and yeah, you know, I could see how if, if you weren't really close to this, you might not quite get that we're talking about, you know, a mother who on Friday in one of our communities had ice barge into her house without even knocking on the door, take her away in her pajamas without letting her change. She sat for eight hours in a detention center, not knowing if she was going to see her two U.S. citizen children ever again. Um, I mean, that's, that's the heartbreaking part, and um, that that we as we, that, you know, if we're going to call ourselves Americans, we got to live up to it, and that and that's not that's not American behavior, and it's certainly not Christian behavior. Zach, I'm going to ask you a question similar to what I asked uh, Pastor Husto as well, which is, well, I mean, actually, let's look back at the original Underground Railroad. They didn't have things which are available now. Mass media was a much smaller uh, thing back in those days. The ability to communicate uh, was was more curtailed than, than what we have today. Um, I'm guessing that, you know, like four days ago, BuzzFeed did this article about you. People can communicate digitally pretty quickly and pretty easily. Is this thing growing faster, uh, Zach, than you guys thought it was going to grow? I would say, yeah, and then the day before the BuzzFeed article, there was a piece on CNN um, that, that talked about a little bit about the work in Los Angeles, and uh, it, it is growing rapidly. We doubled the number of um, inquiries, I'll just say, that we got from folks over like a four-day period, um, and, and I, I think we just feel that there's a, there's a great spirit of love and determination to, to act and to be in solidarity with fellow human beings, and um, and it's showing up. You know, it's showing up not just for LA Voice or for other organizations here in Los Angeles that are doing this work, or or in Buffalo. But I, I think there's a lot of places where people are going to be surprised by um, how many folks want to act with them to protect families. Uh, well, Zach, I'm from the same denomination as I believe you are, American Baptist Church, so I'm pretty excited about this. I'm going to go talk to my con congregation about it. Uh, but, uh, Pastor Husto, I'm going to let you have the last word. I mean, this could get rough, right? It could get rougher than it is right now, either in terms we already talked about the idea of maybe uh, raids on church property happening, although that typically you know, isn't the way things go. And, and maybe a person like you, whose name is prominently associated with this, you could get arrested. Have you thought much about that, prayed about it, mentally prepared yourself for a day when the federal government comes and slaps some handcuffs on you? Yeah, that was part of the dialogue that we had as a church. And, and I'm very clear that the needs of people supersedes my own personal needs. Now, I'm also 
not dumb. Uh, my congregation does have some attorneys. There is a network here of attorneys that are assisting us. We have been assigned a pro bono attorney to provide legal assistance should something happen at the church or something happen to me. So we are creating the networks. But most importantly, my faith demands that I stand at the gap of an injustice. And if that means that I need to get in the way or that ICE or Border Patrol chooses to arrest me for honoring the human dignities of another, that's a risk I'm willing to take because I believe that that is the essential part of my call to serve God's people. Yeah, you know, my uh, lead pastor, Nancy Butler, used to call this picking up your cross. <laughs> you got to pick up your cross sometimes. All right, well, listen, great to talk to both of you. This is a very exciting idea. It's a little bit uh, anxiety-provoking, I'm sure, for a lot of people involved in it. But thanks very much to the Reverend Justo Gonzalez, pastor of Pilgrim St. Luke El Nuevo Camino in Buffalo, New York, and the Reverend Zachary Hoover, Baptist minister and executive director of LA Voice Los Angeles, California. We'll be, we'll be back. I'm just going to open the phone lines. I have some ideas about what we might talk about, but maybe you have your own ideas. 860-275-7266. I actually want to talk a little bit more about the Oscars, but maybe you want to talk about something else. 860-275-7266. There are six pieces of paper taped to the wall of Stephen Bannon's West Wing office. Five of them contain lists of the various promises that Donald Trump made during the campaign. The sixth one explains how to make a meat pie out of human organs. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Ali Oshinsky. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ryan Gosling. No, that was wrong. It was played by Denzel Washington. No, it was Emma Stone. I'm positive. You can subscribe to our podcast on Etsy. I mean, iTunes. On tomorrow's show, a long talk with actress Sam Waterston. And now, back to Colin. Yes, I've already had that talk with Sam Waterston. Uh, We did it on Friday. You'll hear it tomorrow. It bridges very well from some of the things that we've been talking here today. Sam's very interested in matters of justice, as befits a prosecutor from Law & Order, although we're not going to talk about Law & Order. We're not going to talk about that show. Uh, And uh, he wants to talk also about faith, very much about faith. So uh, I loved the conversation that we had. I'm just I'll I'll give that spoiler. So I hope you will tune in tomorrow. Meanwhile, the phone lines are open here at 860-275-7266. Before we get to uh, Mary Lynn from Bristol, let's just take Mary Lynn from Bristol. I I do want to talk about. Uh, you just heard Wolfie kind of joking about this whole issue, kind of making mistakes, <laughs> kind of getting things wrong. I'm like getting kind of big things really wrong last night. I do have a little something I want to say about that. But let's get Mary Lynn from Bristol on the air again. Our number, 860-275-7266. You're on the air, Mary Lynn. Hey, Colin. Hi. Um, hi. I just wanted to, you, you had asked the first guest whether the jabs of Hollywood have any effect on, on Mr. Trump. And my, my view on it is that he's like kind of a, a naughty child and who just wants attention, and it doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative. And so I wonder if all the negative attention he's getting just feeds him. Well, I don't know. Actually, you know what? Could we play the um, the uh, Jimmy Kimmel clip from last night? This is how this is a little montage of how things sounded from Jimmy Kimmel's podium. 
This broadcast is being watched live by millions of Americans and around the world in more than 225 countries that now hate us. And I think that is an amazing thing. Maybe this is not a popular thing to say, but I want to say thank you to President Trump. I mean, remember last year when it seemed like the Oscars were racist? I know we've all seen it all, but it's important that we take a second to appreciate what is happening here. We're at the Oscars, the Academy Awards. You're nominated. You got to come. Your families are nominated. Your friends. Some of you will get to come up here on this stage tonight and give a speech that the President of the United States will tweet about in, in all caps during his 5 a.m. bowel movement tomorrow. So, Mary Lynn, you know, to answer your question, I, I don't know. In a way, I sort of agree with Frank Rich that it doesn't matter because the only way that it would matter would be if he had this almost Scrooge-like epiphany, right? That, you know, just to hear one person after another taunting him, making fun of him, uh, begging for a different reality, you know, if one day he woke up a changed man, that they were like these ghosts who visited him in the night. But, but Marilyn, my sense is that's really not how the world works. And you're probably closer to the truth, that he just listens to all this stuff and goes, well, I, I certainly am part of the conversation these days. Yeah, I just I think that it it, it feeds his his narcissism. Um, you know, I think I, I I fear that you might be right that in fact all of this uh, sound and fury isn't really getting into him. I do I just want to say one quick thing about this, and then we've got a call from uh, Jan. If you, anybody else wants to call in, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We've got uh, Jan from Darien. You know, today on social media, which is a bad place to go looking for the truth, but maybe a good place to go looking for certain kinds of spin. Um, there are people that I encounter on my social media feeds who often will make this argument, and they made it last night in connection with this, you know, it was kind of an, a, a fiasco at the end. You know, you wait all night to find out who won Best Picture, assuming anybody cares, but I do, you know, and, and certainly the people sitting there do. And so they announce La La Land, and the music plays, and everybody who's sitting there on the La La Land section, uh, they, they get up and they hug each other and kiss each other. They go up on stage, they thank everybody they ever knew, and uh, then suddenly somebody says, no, wait, wait, it's all wrong, Moonlight, you guys won, uh, and the Moonlight people they sort of do, they don't get that moment where the music plays and they all get to but they get up on stage and they get to and you know, meanwhile the LA people are the La La Land people are feeling like idiots and I don't know there was this thing I was seeing on social media saying well you know it's human beings human beings make mistakes move on and I was trying to think where have I seen that and I, I realized that it's you know I've seen it sometimes from the same people when Trump claims that there was terrorism in Sweden the night before. Or when Kellyanne Conway talks about the Bowling Green Massacre, or when, to go back to what Frank Rich was talking about, when when Sean Spicer makes easily disprovable assertions about crowd size, you know, and that are that are, and there's this. What are the answers? And, and, of course, those are small mistakes in a way. Big mistakes are implementing a policy that you really don't understand how to implement. You haven't hired the right people to do it. You haven't trained the kind of people who can do it effectively and professionally with a minimal amount of human breakage. Those are the big mistakes which are also being made. Things are just doing being done hastily and rushed in a way that will have devastating human consequences. Um, and I'm I'm concerned that... 
You know, there are all these little areas, these little frontiers that you don't want to see kind of overrun uh, by destructive forces. And we've talked a little bit about language and, and empiricism and things like that. But I think there's this other one of competence. You know, I mean, there's maybe an attempt to define competence down and say, well, it's human beings, so so they didn't get the name of the best picture right. So, well, that was like their big job. You're supposed to do that. And and I think it's, it is a bleed in a way, anyway, from the administration, which gets so many things wrong, both big and little. All right. We are running out of time here, but not so much so that we can't talk to Jan. Hi, Jan. You're on the air. Hi. Thank you. Um, I just had one comment to make after listening to your show, and that is that I once had a rabbi in Stanford who, in a Yom Kippur service, defined uh, Judaism as the search for social justice in the world. And I think that's something that I've tried to live, live through, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty easy context to think about what's going on today. And I just wanted to add that to your conversation. Well, it's a great addition, and thank you very much. And, yeah, I don't know. Like, I was sitting in church yesterday thinking, you know, when I'm sitting here, I feel like I'm kind of getting the right answers to things. You know, the more merciful <laughs> answers, the more—even—I'm even, even I'm not even just talking about ways in which I can differentiate myself from the policies of the Trump administration. I'm talking about ways in which I don't always— you know, find immediately or think immediately about uh, the the most just, merciful, and productive response to things. So I'm probably, you know, uh, I, I think that fits very much with her definition of Judaism. I will tell you that tomorrow, yes, the Sam Watterson show, uh, and later this week, we're going to do a show that's entirely about treason, uh, but the concept of treason, how it's existed o- over the years. So we have uh, lots of fun stuff in store for you as we go along this week. Uh, please stay with us. Thanks to everybody else who helped, uh, to everybody who, who helped make today's show a reality. Betsy Kaplan is the nerve center of our Monday show. Uh, Wolfie's on the board. Uh, and everybody else behind the scenes is making this uh, as good a show as we can possibly make it. So thanks for seeking us out. Seek us out for the rest of the week. These are going to be great shows. I mean, I already know about the Sam Waterston show tomorrow. And, and you're gonna really, I think you're really going to like it. And he's kind of he's going to surprise you a little bit about sort of who he is and how he expresses himself. You know, with all this Moonlight, La La Land, Oscars drama, I haven't seen this country so divided since, well, that morning and then uh, the day before. The day before that, yeah, that was for sure. The, the day before that, yeah, that was a bad one. And then there was the day before that.